I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. Between last week's IPCC Code Red report and the net zero heavy news cycle going into COP26 this November, we'd all be forgiven for thinking that climate change isn't just the predominant issue at stake. It's the only issue. And truth be told, there's a lot to say about that. The IPCC conclusions made sure of that in the most sobering way. But it's well worth keeping in mind that there's another issue, a parallel tract, in fact, the 15th United Nations Conference of Parties, or COP15, slated to meet in Kunming, China, this October. And this conference, COP15, is going to be the largest biodiversity summit in more than a decade in an effort to establish a new set of targets to protect the natural world. And frankly, policymakers have their work cut out for them. By that I mean, it's now widely believed in the scientific community that humans are causing the sixth mass extinction event in the history of the planet. And so the question now is what, beyond policy intervention, can help stem the impacts of biodiversity loss? And what role will the private sector and markets play in this fundamental shift in thinking about the economic value of the natural world? Which is why I'm especially grateful to interview Elizabeth Maruma Imrema, Executive Secretary of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity. Indeed, Elizabeth will be leading this year's COP15 in Kunming, China, and she's already been overseeing a series of pre-negotiation technical discussions. We talk about how negotiations are progressing into COP15, what can be approved upon from the 2010 Aichi Convention targets, and why it's vital that global market-led initiatives like the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, or TNFD, provide a framework to report and act on nature-related risks. Besides her role as Executive Secretary of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, Elizabeth is the newly appointed co-chair of the TNFD. She also has several decades of experience in environmental and conservation policy, having worked at the UN Environment Program, including as Director of the Law Division and with the United Republic of Tanzania's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation. Welcome to the podcast, Executive Secretary Elizabeth Morema. It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, Elizabeth, we have a lot of great stuff to talk about. I'd like to start out doing some scene setting. It seems like a reflection of the 2010 Aichi Convention is, in some ways, the natural starting point for our discussion, given the lessons on how to structure new biodiversity targets in the upcoming UN Biodiversity Conference, or COP15, that's planned to be held in Kunming, China, this October. So how is the fact that no nation met the 20 original Aichi biodiversity targets from 2010 shaped negotiations and expectations around new commitments and targets going this year into COP15? Thank you. Thank you very much for the question, uh, Jason, and which is very important. But I would like to make a bit of correction. You see, at times when we say none of the 20 Aichi targets were met, uh, I'm sure governments might be disappointed because there were some targets 
not fully achieved or fully met, but a lot of progress had been made to about six of them, without which the situation would have been even more terrible than where we are today. So I think we need to give credit uh, to where a little progress has been made. And if that is scaled up in the future, uh, we might be in a better position. Nonetheless, yes, not none of the targets was fully met. Although as we speak now, one target is about to be reached or already reached, and this is target 11 on protected areas. 17% of terrestrial land has been reached with a few decimal points uh, remaining for the 10% required for the marine environment. So why we fail to achieve all the 20 targets fully as expected a decade ago? There are several reasons, and I will try just to highlight some key ones. One, there was an expectation, I think, that... Uh, the responsibility for the implementation or reaching out the Aichi biodiversity targets squarely lied on governments. While we know very well biodiversity affects every aspect of the society and everybody, and therefore it needed everybody, all stakeholders, to be part and parcel for its implementation. But the problem that could not have been part and parcel of its implementation because not all of them were engaged in its development. So it did not engage all stakeholders in its development, and that paid off negatively when it came to implementation. Even at government level, with that expectation that was the responsibility of the government, and because the Aichi biodiversity targets most of our focal points are ministries or departments of environment, Again, at national level, there was that lack of whole of government, whole of society, integrated, mainstreamed approach for its implementation. And it became then the responsibility of ministries of environment and not all government departments. We know very well for many countries to date, ministers of environment at national level for a number of countries are the quote and unquote the weak ministries comparing to other uh, ministries which are considered more of a priority at national level, finance, planning, agriculture, fisheries, and what have you, while environment brings all of them together under a whole society, whole of government approach. Also, the Aichi targets were adopted without a review monitoring mechanism. So over the period, we are not able to assess progress of its implementation and be able to adjust as we went along. And then furthermore, the Aichi biodiversity targets were expected to be implemented for 10 years, 2011 to 2020. Many countries took a step back, began developing national biodiversity action plans and strategies, uh, and it's a consultative process, rightly so. But that process took three, four years before it was completed. So actually, for many countries, the actual implementation began after three, four years. So practically, the decade ended up being half a decade. And therefore, probably the six partly achieved targets could have been fully achieved, who knows, if that time lag had not been lost.
And then, of course, issues of clarity, understanding the targets was also an issue. You know, as negotiators, and when we look at biodiversity issues, actually those mostly affected are the people on the ground. And these are the ones they need the scientific documents to be translated into simpler language which they can understand. And in many cases, probably even to their local languages. So that kind of clarity also had an impact uh, in the uh, status of implementation. And then, of course, major aspect of it was lack of financial resources. Much as uh, Aichi target, uh, I think, 19 had expected international financial flows to double. Much as international financial flows increased tremendously, but was not adequate to support fully implementation of the Aichi biodiversity targets. So there was that lack of financial resources, which then compromised the achievement. Inadequate political will also would have been another factor into the equation. And all of this put together resulted into the state of affairs. We found ourselves 2020, uh, the end of the Aichi biodiversity target ended. What have we learned from that? Especially now, as we are now in the current process for the development of the new post-2020 global biodiversity framework, so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, but at the same time, we take the positive lessons from that build into the new framework, which is being led by the two co-chairs from Canada and Uganda. So one, the development now of the new framework is ensuring an effective, participative, consultative process with literally all stakeholders, in particular, indigenous peoples, local communities, the youth, the women, the private sector. And when I talk private sector, I mean the banks, the insurance, the industry, the business. And through this engagement, we have seen, for instance, particularly with the private sector, we have initiatives now like business for nature, finance for nature, and a whole lot of work currently going on under the World Economic Forum linking nature, finance, and economics. Again, this came uh, as the result of that. Furthermore, when the parties set up the process for the development of the framework, they categorically asked for a simpler, smart targets of the framework. And what do they mean by smart? The targets have to be specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound so as to be able to pave the way to a more comprehensive and successful, hopefully this year, framework. The first draft of the framework has already been issued since 12th July. It will be now negotiated between 23rd August to September 3rd this year. And the framework, again, will be accompanied with a glossary, with an indicator, plus a component of means of implementation. And under the means of implementation, we'll have resource mobilization strategy, capacity building technology framework component, 
review and monitoring mechanism. And we hope with the new framework when it is adopted, there will be no again delay of three, four years as we did for the Aichi targets because all our parties now have the national biodiversity strategies and action plans already in place. And because the framework is building on the Aichi biodiversity targets, so there are tools to begin implementation. And if update will be needed, will then be done in tandem as opposed to taking a pause and do the update first. So if that happens, then we'll have a full decade, which now is already less by two years or a year. But I hope governments will be able to catch up. So, so it sounds actually quite positive. It sounds like your efforts are explicitly correcting some of those problems from Aichi in 2010. I'm wondering, to what degree can you help us out in understanding the tone of some of the pre-negotiation technical committees going into COP15 over the last couple of months? And more specifically, how are you balancing a more pragmatic agreement that reflects the disappointment and learnings of Aichi with calls by, let's say, the CBD Alliance for a much more ambitious action plan? You see, all stakeholders have agreed, including governments have agreed that the framework need to be innovative, transformative, ambitious, and all sorts of buzzwords. The question is, what is ambitious? What do we mean when we say ambitious? And if it's ambitious, is up to what limit or what measurement? And I think this is where probably one will say uh, is a gray word or language uh, that creates that disappointment of each made by the parties and stakeholders. But that disappointment actually makes both the parties and stakeholders probably more committed to really develop a new set of targets and a more ambitious action plan. Of course, CBD Alliance are saying the current draft is not ambitious, but remember the draft has tried to include into it all the views which had been compiled from all stakeholders. It's a formidable task, and I don't think it's easy to really please one stakeholder and not offending the other. So that balancing act we need to, uh, to realize. One, two, the negotiations now are about to begin end of this month. We will see how the negotiations go. Maybe they will further uh, increase the ambition expected. So I think we need to give that a chance and we hope that uh, the ambition could be increased to the level the CBD Alliance is looking for. But if I go to the technical committees which you have referred, the tone was actually definitely one of cooperation among the parties. And then, of course, they were able to lay a path to a participative process in this process of development of the framework. And, of course, the process which was adopted by the parties to develop the framework also has set out a set of principles to guide not just the development, but also in future its implementation. And it cannot guide the implementation if the development does not take into account these principles. And those principles are participatory, 
inclusiveness, gender responsiveness, transformative, comprehensive, catalytic, visible, knowledge scientific based, transparent, efficient, results oriented, interactive, flexible. So you see all those words are the principles guiding the framework. Considering the COP15 has been postponed twice because of COVID-19, how would you say the pandemic has influenced and shaped the policy agenda around biodiversity over the last year and a half? And it's actually worth asking because we, we've started to see some talk about a third delay to COP15, the conference, into next year. How likely do you think that is? True, the pandemic has resulted into the postponement of the Conference of the Parties twice. We are looking at meeting in October. But while the pandemic situation has been unfortunate, and we are really in solidarity with all countries globally for the loss of the people, for people getting sick, for the impacts on the socioeconomic development sphere, but... For our process in our vetted commas, it has given us an opportunity in terms of more time to develop the framework, more time to prepare for the conference of the parties. Because I don't think, I stand to be corrected, if we had the COP last year in May, probably the first draft framework we have today will not have been in the content we are seeing because it will have been rushed in its development. We will not have had such a wide consultative process as we have had in the last uh, two years plus. So this all this time has given us that opportunity. And this fact of working from home, it has even made it easier and cheaper to reach out to different stakeholders cheaper in terms of people did not need to travel, needed to ensure they have good connectivity. It has been a challenge for, uh, for a number of countries, but at least we've been able to reach out. The co-chairs have been able to reach out to many stakeholders and get them engaged in this process. So that has been a major plus for our purposes. The other major plus is the better understanding now globally. I stand to be corrected, that people know probably are more aware of the impacts of biodiversity loss in the society and the impacts of human activities on nature causing biodiversity loss, causing climate change, causing degradation, impacting on our health better than any, probably any other time in the history. That again has enabled to propel the focus on the content of the global biodiversity framework. What that means for the next COP, our technical meet committee meetings, we call them subsidiary bodies of science and implementation, which met in May and June for six weeks virtually. These meetings are to contribute to the COP15 as well as contribute elements for the post-2020 framework. The parties agreed to postpone those meetings as opposed to closing them until when they are able to meet face-to-face. -face. 
So if they are able to meet face to face, then it means that's when they will finalize those contributions and negotiations feeding into the post-2020 and the framework. Likewise, the working group, which will meet at the end of August, on that 3rd September, it will also suspend its meeting until when negotiators are able to meet face-to-face. I see. Currently, again, keeping the situation under strict review, particularly now when it comes to not just the pandemic, but also the status of vaccination, particularly for many countries which are not as privileged as well some of us are. So the vaccination status. Then we are looking at having the face-to-face probably in January. I see. Let me ask you one final point around the negotiations. One of the traditional points of tension between developed and developing economies during the climate COPs was always this socioeconomic development. In fact, I remember when I was in COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009, when this dialogue infamously broke down. To what degree has the Biodiversity Convention's Article 20, specifically, which relates to financial resources and obligations of developed and developing countries, diffuse this. I guess I'm wondering, to what degree is biodiversity in a way being used as a bargaining chip during these negotiations? How do you find the right balance between national biodiversity commitments and socioeconomic growth? As we move to the negotiations, we will have a better picture. But for now, we are looking at one hand, the sustainable use of biodiversity being supported by enabling conditions such as sustainable socioeconomic development and adequate means of implementation, which I mentioned earlier, issues of financial resources, capacities, and technology. And then, of course, such aspects are one pillar of the theory of change underlining also the draft framework. And, of course, these are those I mentioned, the components of the framework which will be added In other words, the framework will be adopted with the means of implementation. And the means of implementation, without financial resources, there can be no implementation. Without enhancing the capacity, transferring appropriate technology, then there will be weakness in the implementation. Developing a holistic resource mobilization strategy to mobilize resources from all sources was noted as among the key issues to be discussed at our next COP. Currently, the draft framework already proposes the need to raise $200 billion per year of financial resources, which will be required for the implementation of the framework. And out of that, $10 billion per year is the movement of resources from developed to developing world. So clearly the recent statistics have already given us that figure and the framework has taken cognizance of that. So for many countries, how we'll get these resources will be key. But by saying so, we are also saying it doesn't mean that the financial resources 100% have to come from international financial flows, but from all sources, international, domestic, but also disincentivizing nature-negative finances 
Currently, statistics show that $500 billion are spent from nature negative outcomes. And we need this to be repurposed, redirected into nature positive outcomes. $100 billion US dollars alone incentivizes harmful agriculture. So you see, if these resources are redirected, we'll already be able, hopefully, to get half, if not more, of the required resources per year for the implementation of the framework. Not only that, the World Economic Forum has given us statistics which show that almost half of the world's total GDP, specifically $44 trillion, being moderately or highly dependent on nature and its benefits or services. And all this, so we are saying there is money there. And this shows why even the private sector has an interest because these are exposed to risk from nature loss. Basically also saying that if we are able to transition from nature negative economy to nature positive economy, that will be able to generate $10 trillion in business opportunities and being able to create almost 400 million jobs by 2030. In fact, specifically 395 million jobs by 2030. So you see, there's a lot of money which needs to be repurposed, redirected into nature positive. How do you talk to that in terms of whether it's statistics or a message? And I, I guess I want to draw out climate change as a parallel. It, climate change has benefited significantly from a very reductionist approach. By that, I mean it, by describing its arc by, say, the atmospheric increase in CO2 per parts million, or, or galvanizing governments and the private sector under the race to net zero, which we've seen into the climate COP26 later this month. Uh, critics, and I fully recognize this, critics would say it's overly simplistic, but it has been incredibly effective at galvanizing you know, climate action. What's the analog for biodiversity in your perspective? How do you condense the vast complexity and biological breadth of nature into definable targets that aren't overly general. And by that, I mean, you know, for instance, the 30% protection by 2030 target. Biodiversity loss and climate change are intrinsically connected. And biodiversity plays a big positive role in climate change adaptation and mitigation because biodiversity contributes about 30% of the greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, conservation of habitats can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. And this is what the forest does. Not surprising that major subject of climate change now, and even as it prepares to COP26, nature-based solution comes out more and more. So, if climate change sees nature being part of the solution for climate change, clearly then for biodiversity loss, equally nature is critical. If nature is degraded, it affects biodiversity, it affects climate. Although, of course, for biodiversity, we'll also add ecosystem-based solutions. So both nature-based solutions, but also ecosystem-based solutions. So you can see 
Each depends on the other in terms of solutions. The scientific research, of course, still needs to identify for us all the complex interaction between biodiversity and ecosystem functioning globally. And in this context, hmm, a simple target such as rest to net zero is rather challenging to, concept, to conceptualize for biodiversity because such complexity, of course, is considered in the context of global biodiversity. And to this effect, we see the framework coming with different targets for different things which are comprehensive enough to reflect that complexity of biodiversity and its various ecosystems. But to say we'll be able to get the 1.5 degrees like climate in the complexity mosaic biodiversity, which encompose many things, is still a challenge. But who knows when we get into the negotiations, we might get magic figures. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's switch lanes a little bit and, and go into the TNFD or the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, which, congratulations, you are a recently appointed co-chair, um, which is a fantastic role. I guess, I, you know, sort of in looking at TNFD, one thing that, that is clear is that it borrows a lot from the TCFD or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, that framework, which makes complete sense. One area, though where it gives much more breadth, where it diverges from TCFD is in the interpretation of nature-related risks and opportunities. Yeah, again, speaking to that vast complexity of, of what nature represents. Is that a necessary compromise given the lack of historical nature-related data and data metrics that we have? You know, TCFD at least had the benefit of starting with 15 years of carbon disclosure project data, as well as scope one and two, and even to some degree, three GHG reporting protocol. You are right. When we look at climate issues, climate change issues, and the world looking at climate change or action, as the case may be, it started many years ago before biodiversity became the center of discussions as it is today. And that's why I'm saying Probably pandemic has also provided that uh, awareness opportunity, which probably will not have been where it has reached today. But you are also correct that uh, TNFD really borrows and uh, we rely heavily on TCFD because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And the actors, in most cases, if we are talking to the financial sector, we are still talking to the same stakeholder. So you want this stakeholder when they look at climate-related risk and nature-related risk, they should see that the two speak to each other. And especially if we say climate change and biodiversity loss are connected. So TCFD provides us the framework for financial institutions and corporates to be able actually to identify and report, not just uh, on climate-related risk, but TNFD will learn from that, build upon that, to be able now to deliver a framework for financial institutions and corporates to report and act on evolving nature-related risks. So basically, is how their operations or investments will impact or depends on nature. And therefore, to what extent are they exposed to nature-related financial risks? TNFD, of course, hopefully will also call on financial sector to integrate financial-related risks in their decision-making 
financial and corporates need decision grade uh, data. And recently, under the Secretariat, we actually had a, a workshop with financial sector in June, and basically looking or where uh, looking at the importance of biodiversity data is a key issue for TNFD. And because TNFD only came recently, but of course, remember, the last two years, we had an informal working group working on these issues with the financial sector. So a lot of groundwork has already been done. And we would want the financial sector not just to look, data is one, but not just only financial, I mean, nature-related risks, but also opportunities. Because if $44 trillion are highly dependent on nature, $10 billion per year comes, I mean, from nature, there are opportunities there, clearly. So the risks and opportunities need to be looked together. But you need the data, and the data then will be key. And in this workshop, of course, they underlined the importance of data collection and management of that data is still a challenge, and they express the need, the participants, of relevant data being translated into a meaningful information which they can use. And currently, of course, for a number of NGOs, they were saying data is scattered across just too many databases, and they counted about 300. So there is need to consolidate all this data and make it more easily accessible, not just to individuals, but also public and private organizations. There's another divergence between the TNFD and TCFD, which I personally welcome. I think it's fantastic to see. I do think I recognize that it is a bit contentious or controversial, depending on where you're looking jurisdictionally at this. And that's around this issue of double materiality or outside in, inside out. And TNFD specifically includes it within its text, where TCFD solely looks at the financial materiality of climate impacts on the company itself. So it actually doesn't address double materiality. Can you give us some context for how this came about? Also, how does this choice in some respects complicate an already complex effort? Not being an expert on TS, uh, <laughs> TCFD's matter, but I'll try to relate that into TNFD. I think first we need to realize, just as with climate, nature-related risks can affect the operations of companies as well as financial institutions, and thus leading to financial risks. But of course, these companies and financial institutions can also affect biodiversity through their activities and financing, and therefore contributing to biodiversity loss. So actually, many businesses are dependent on the proper sourcing of biodiversity in their supply chain. Furthermore, of course, for TNFD, as I said, is basically to recommend the use of both nature-related risks, but also opportunities, and take this broad, broader perspective uh, to refer to the risks, because we know the opportunities to an organization will pose by the linkages between those activities and nature. And of course, when we say opportunities, that then brings in the incentive to really see what TNFD wants to come about with and to engage, get the financial institutions to engage into it. But in the short-term financial risks, 
which includes unfortunately longer term risks represented by the impacts and dependencies on nature that means that organization will need to disclose not just how nature may impact their organization's immediate financial performance in terms of looking from outside in but also how the organizations will be impacted by nature and looking from inside out either positively or negatively so it will be fundamental to consider both aspects related to nature related risks even if this does not make our work of future business of reporting or make it more complex i think it's the best way to address them better beginning it now rather than doing it later we talked a little bit about the lack of biodiversity data and at the same time the high number of existing frameworks and i'm wondering you know in your mind how does the tnfd avoid clashes with other initiatives initiatives like the OECD multi-stakeholder group uh, the emergence of national biodiversity policies like the EU 2030 biodiversity strategy i guess more importantly how do you see the TNFD framework coexisting with national policy efforts yes important question and it's not the intention of TNFD to overlap or conflict so it will be important to really also uh, take stock of existing relevant initiatives so that then TNFD either fills the gap or uses the existing information in its own to create that harmony and synergy among different uh, initiatives because otherwise then it will be a total confusion to the financial sector and if we can't have them on board now then we we'll lose them in the longer term causing more biodiversity loss including climate change Uh, so what TNFD intends, we hope that uh, uh, the TNFD will define the framework that will be able to serve as a mechanism to help organizations understand, disclose, and manage their financial risks and opportunities associated with the deteriorating state of nature, while, of course, transitioning to an economy consistent with meeting the future nature related international agreements like our own convention on biological diversity as well as the ambition being set out in the post 2020 global biodiversity framework we hope also there will be a need to align with and draw from the existing frameworks initiatives standards and avoid any duplication or conflict when we develop standards either for disclosure or broader activities themselves and we hope that then by doing so then TNFD intends for its output to be integrated into existing frameworks and standards in the space that has already been developed or published in these other different initiatives for instance to be able to engage and draw from the work of key bodies like financial sustainability board or network of central banks for greening the financial systems and the like and we also hope that the reporting mechanism will be based on standards and national international regulations that already exist or being developed by governments and other stakeholders for instance we know recently the french financial institutions are required by a new law in france from the french financial regulator to disclose both biodiversity 
and climate-related risks and impacts of their work. In the same way, the EU 2030 biodiversity strategy, as well as the ongoing being discussed UK Environment Bill, seeks to use disclosure to understand what impacts and dependencies of an organizational sector are on nature. So all these initiatives are actually in favor of biodiversity, complementing each other, contributing to their biodiversity targets, but of course, uh, obliging now the financial sector to report on the impacts on the dependence of their operations on nature or biodiversity. Yeah, it's such an ambitious effort. How do you see the TNFD managing to be broad enough to be a common framework, yet still able to address challenges around geolocation and geospecificities? I mean, many people sort of point to the fact that, you know, a gallon of water in Montreal, for instance, isn't the same as a gallon of water in Chennai, India. TNFD's approach is meant to be inclusive. It's meant to work with existing standard bodies to be able to develop that, hopefully, global framework, which draws from existing initiatives and standards that are relevant. So it is in these discussions that then we'll be able to understand, yes, we are dealing with a gallon of water, but it's different from one country to the other or different from one region to the other. And what does that mean to develop a global standard which brings align these different specificities? And of course, by doing so, hopefully then the framework will undergo a lot of pilots in order to be able to refine and ensure it's applicable in different sectors and different geographies. That's what I can say. Got it. What role do you see the private sector, particularly markets, playing in biodiversity. Besides pointing to an institutional failure, I found this Gupta review out of the UK particularly interesting in terms of it claiming that the decline in natural capital, which it sees as declining by 40% per person between 1992 and 2014, it also represents a market failure. So it's not just an institutional failure, it's a market failure. And as we know, market prices don't reflect the true value of services and products that nature provides for free. Yes, and indeed, that's why Daguspa really criticized that thinking where all the economic theories being used currently are looking at nature as a product for free and not costing nature in its work. No wonder we've plundered it and now we are paying for it. But private sector has a key role to play in reversing nature loss. And this is what Daguspa is reminding us in the review. Investments in nature-positive activities or companies or transition to sustainable production practices, transformation of supply chains, assessment of impacts and dependencies on nature, likewise biodiversity risk identification and management, all count among the initiatives the private sector can take. The public sector has, on the other hand, complementary role to play also in supporting these efforts through the implementation of economic and financial sector policies and regulations that can directly then impact the operations of companies from private sector. So among those policies that align incentives and market prices are all central in order to internalize the negative externalities. 
the private sector and public sector need to work together to limit and even prevent the market failures. So one cannot work against the other. I've got, Elizabeth, one more question in staying with this markets theme. You know, climate policy and environmental economics have, in essence, helped produce carbon markets. How do you see markets providing a price signal to protect against biodiversity loss and nature-related risks? What are the ways in which biodiversity can leverage nature-based offset markets in particular? Number one, of course, the climate community and biodiversity community need to work together. So as you note, ecosystem services and benefits are underpriced and therefore underprovided. And hence, we need the public policies institutions that may seek to address this imbalance by reforming the subsidies policies, which then complement standards and regulations to support ecosystem conservation and restoration. We need economic instruments such as biodiversity relevant taxes, fees and charges, tradable permits, biodiversity offsets, and payments for ecosystem services that can also be used as tools to better reflect the cost of biodiversity loss on the economy and the human well-being. So clearly nature can no longer be for free to plunder. Hmm. Such a great way to end this. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. So it's been fascinating to discuss how discussions are progressing into the run-up to the COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference. What can be improved upon from the 2010 Aichi Convention targets and why it's vital that global market-led initiatives like the TNFD provide a framework to report and act on nature-related risks. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at MAG Group, here today with Executive Secretary Elizabeth Imrema, Executive Secretary of the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity and co-chair of the Task Force on the Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Thank you very much, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.